Let's pray. Father, as we come now to consider your word, uh, we ask that uh, your Holy Spirit will be very, uh, very active in our minds and in our hearts. Grant us uh, clear thinking. Um, pray that you'd work in our hearts so that the things that we think about and discuss, that you would make them a reality in our lives. Uh, grant us not just to be theory, grant us not to be obscure, grant it to be clear, and grant it uh, to, uh, we ask that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please sit down. <clears throat> and uh, it'd be helpful if you'd keep the first reading, the reading on page 12 from uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. We're not going to get through all of that, but we're going to get through a little bit of it. Today we're uh, beginning a series in uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we're going to be spending most of the autumn walking through this letter uh, and trying to listen very carefully uh, to what it is that the apostle is teaching us. Let me explain a little bit why we're going to do that. Uh, there's a question that runs around my head a fair amount. And uh, the question that runs around my head a fair amount is this. What does it take for us to be a church that really lives out Jesus' vision for a church well? Uh, I could say it differently. What does it take for us here at Emmanuel Anglican Church to be a church where Jesus can look at us and say, that's it, that's, that's what I want churches to be like, or at least it's, it's on the right road, it's on the right trajectory. What would it take for us, I could say it kind of bluntly, what would it be, for us to be a church that Jesus likes. Um, and part of the reason I say that is that if you read through the New Testament, you can see it in the gospel reading we just heard, if you read through the New Testament, it's abundantly clear that you can self-identify as religious, you can uh, identify as a disciple of Jesus, you can call yourself a Christian church, and nevertheless be miles away from Jesus's vision for the church. Our gospel reading had Peter, who's, you know, not nobody. And Jesus, he rebukes Jesus for talking about going to the cross and dying, and Jesus looks at him and says, you're acting like Satan, get out of my way, which is troubling. And I, for a church, I, it seems to me that that means that we've got to be at least sometimes willing to be self-critical. We need to be able to be a church that looks at ourselves and asks hard questions like, how are we doing? Um, if, Jesus, if we were talking to Jesus right now, would he talk to us like Peter? Ooh, that would be awkward. Or, or would he say, yeah, you're doing well, hang in there. And it's important for us to be a church that's willing to be self-critical uh, because that's one of the signs of a church that you can trust. I mean, if you're investigating Jesus, if you're thinking about Jesus, then I recommend don't hang out at a church that's not willing to look at itself and ask hard questions because otherwise that's not going to be a church that you, can, that you can trust. What does it take for us to be a church that lives out Jesus' vision for church well? All right, all that's background. That brings us to Paul's letter to the Colossians because uh, Paul wrote this letter that we've just read just a little bit of the first chapter. Uh, he wrote this letter to a 
church, not unlike ours, that met in a town called Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. And you could almost think of this letter as a kind of coaching document for a church. Um, Apostles, there were several of them, apostles were tasked with implementing Jesus' vision for church communities. And in this letter, Paul writes to a church, he doesn't know this church personally, uh, this church was founded and pastored by somebody that, that Paul had, had, um, had discipled. But he writes this letter to this church, and in, and in some respects he says, well done, Colossae, you're, you're hanging in there, you're doing well. These are a number of things that you're doing very, very well. But then he also says, but there's these other areas that you need to be careful about, church at Colossae, and you need to up your game on some of these points. And it's very helpful for us because it means that over the autumn we can uh, listen to this letter and allow the Apostle Paul to do the same with us. Allow the Apostle Paul to say, Emmanuel, you're doing well on a number of different things, and I hope we will be able to receive that with joy and encouragement. But we will also hear Paul challenging us, saying things we don't want to hear, saying things like, you're going to have to up your game in this area. And as we do that, my prayer is that our vision for our church will become clearer and more widely owned. Um, we drafted earlier this year a vision statement for our church, um, and it goes like this. Emmanuel Anglican Church exists to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. And that vision statement was in large part derived, distilled from uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Not entirely, but significantly. And so as we go deep into this letter, and as we hear this letter and internalize it, it'll mean that our vision statement will become clearer and our corporate vision together will become clearer. All right, that's what we're doing all autumn long, uh, but here's where we're going to start today. Here's what we need to, to flesh out. Jesus, according to our reading today, Jesus wants us to be a church that is animated by hope. Or put it differently and more accurately, Jesus wants us to be a church where Jesus Christ himself is the hope that animates everything else. Let me explain what I mean. Take a look at the uh, reading. And uh, we're going to jump in at verse 3. So this is the very beginning of the letter. Paul begins by introducing himself and saying, I'm writing to the to wonderful church at Colossae. And then look at verse 3. He begins by thanking God for what is already occurring in the church. He says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard, and then note there's three things that he's really excited about. Since we heard of your first faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, that's number two, faith, love, and then thirdly, verse five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Okay, now remember, uh, the Apostle Paul, his job is to try to implement Jesus's vision in churches. And therefore, whenever you see the Apostle Paul saying, hey, this is really great, you should, you're doing well, I'm, I'm delighted when I hear this about you, whenever that happens, you should pay attention because you, you'll be able to see the kind of signs of life in a church that is conforming to Jesus' vision. And so he, he says, uh, Colossae, every time I hear about you, I, I delight that you, uh, that you have faith in Christ, that you love each other well, and that you're filled with hope. 
Now, that's not very surprising. Those three, faith, hope, and love, you find them all the way through the Bible. But look back at verse 5, because in verse 5, Paul orders it in a way that is very unique. What he says in verse 5, if you look closely, is that faith in Christ and love for each other both grow out of hope. Did you catch that? He says their faith and their love exist because they have hope. And that's why we need to wrap our minds around this idea of Christian hope. Because according to Paul, it animates the very heart of a church. And for a lot of us, I bet you we don't think that much about hope. Um, a few years ago, uh, in the New York Times, there was an op-ed article by uh, a guy called Nicholas Kristof. And, um, and it was entitled, The Power of Hope is Real. And it was a really interesting article. He, he goes through and he talks about um, the problem of, of, uh, of working in developing countries and, and trying to develop um, a country's economy. And one of the things that he says is that in developing countries, he argues that the very best thing that you can give them is hopefulness about the future. The very best thing that you can give them is a reasonable expectation of a good future. It says the reason that's the best thing you can give them is that when they have a reasonable expectation of a good future, when they are filled with hopefulness, what happens is they, it just generates an enormous amount of energy for them to pursue that good future. And therefore, economically, it leads to development from the inside out. Now, the point is, hope motivates action. And that's part of what's happening here in, in, uh, in, in the letter. What happens is hope motivates faith in Christ and love for each other. However, Paul goes way further than Christoph does. I want you to see that in verse 5, keep your eyes on verse 5, when Paul uses the word hope, he doesn't mean just hopefulness. He does, but he means something bigger than hopefulness. He doesn't just mean optimism. In fact, Paul is writing this from prison. He's in jail in Rome, possibly facing his death. He's talking about something that is more rigorous than optimism, more rigorous than mere uh, the feeling of hopefulness. He's talking about something that is objective and entirely outside the Colossians and outside him. What in the world do you mean by that, Jim? Do you like Star Wars? Yeah? Yes? There's two kinds of people here. I see, I see this and I see this. Well, so if you're like this, then I'm sorry. Um, do you remember the first one? Uh, the real first one. You know? Um, I don't even have to say any more. Do you remember Princess Leia at the very beginning, the hologram thing? She says, um, you know, R2-D2, you know. And, and um, you know what I'm talking about. And she says, uh, help us, Obi-Wan. You're our only hope. That's why the whole thing's called a new hope, right? Now, think about how she uses the word hope there. She is not being optimistic, right? She, her, her spaceship is about ready to be taken over by Darth Vader. She's not being optimistic. She is saying Obi-Wan is the content of her hope. Meaning, if Obi-Wan uh, fails, the Empire wins. If Obi-Wan 
succeeds, then the empire falls. Everything rides not in her disposition of hopefulness, but in this person called Obi-Wan Kenobi who can do things or not do things that will end up determining everything important about the future. That's how Paul is using the word hope in verse 5. Look at it again. Faith and love spring out of hope. Not the hopefulness or optimism that is in me or in you or in the Colossians, but rather hope that is laid up for the Colossians in heaven. And if you read through the rest of Colossians, I'm fairly confident that he means Jesus. He means Jesus and everything Jesus has accomplished for the Colossians. What do you mean by that? Jesus is the hope laid up in heaven for the Colossians. He is their only hope. They were absolutely, as a church, captivated by Jesus and what he had done and who he is and what he's doing at the present. Another way to put it is like this. The Colossians had come to believe that Jesus had accomplished everything necessary for their eternal joy, and that changed everything. They had become convinced that Jesus had accomplished everything necessary for their eternal joy, and that changed everything, and at least it changed them in two ways. First of all, it uh, animated faith. That is to say, it took their fear and replaced it with a high confidence in Jesus, irrespective of their circumstance, and particularly if their circumstances were frightening. Paul was in prison. And on the other hand, it animated love. It enabled them to love people whom they might otherwise be threatened by. Think about this for a moment. If, um, if my future is insecure, then one of the things that that means is it's going to impact the way I relate to people around me. If I find people who, who uh, strike me as threatening to me in some regard, a boss that's never going to let me, you know, succeed, whatever it might be. If I find somebody who I find threatening, I am going to be very self-protective. I'm going to be, I'm going to do whatever it takes to handle the situation. But the one thing that I won't be able to do is love them well. But on the other hand, for the Colossians, they were confident that Jesus had secured everything necessary for their eternal joy. And therefore, that allowed them to interact with people who might otherwise be threatening to them and love them. Just imagine that church for a second. It must have been a remarkable place to be. They were dependent upon Jesus. He was their hope. And because he was their hope, they were marked by joyful trust and joyful love. Now, let's think about us. Uh, Emmanuel exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. And that's what the Colossian church was all about. And for them, the linchpin was coming to this high level of confidence that Jesus had secured everything necessary for their eternal joy. And it impacted everything. So the question for you and me and for us as a church is, how are we doing on that? Is that our conviction? Is it your conviction? And the problem is, is it's not default, is it? It's not. It's not default for any of us. How do you get that kind of high confidence? How do you get that hope? Look back at the text. In verse 5 and 6, hope comes from the gospel. 
hope comes from hearing the fundamental message of who Jesus is and what he has done. I'll explain this a little bit more. Um, friends, every one of us has to hope in something, right? Most of us will hope in one of probably three things. Tell me later if you think I've missed something big. Usually, we'll hope in ourselves, in our accomplishment, in our identity, in something about me. Or we will hope in other people, a leader, a spouse, a relationship. Or thirdly, we'll hope in our circumstances. When things are going well, we're happy. When things are not going well, we're, we're sad. The problem is, with all of those three things, is they're profoundly precarious. Right? If, if I hope in, 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 uh, in the other people around me, in relationships, in my family, in coworkers, whatever it might be, the problem is that'll work fine until they fail you or until they threaten you. And when that happens, you will find a remarkable hostility and resentment. Or if we hope in the circumstances of life, it's fine when things are going well and when you're on a trajectory that you enjoy, but you will have no capacity to deal with hardship at all. It'll destroy you. Or if we hope in ourselves, our accomplishments, our identity, our something about me, that'll be fine until I see my own flaws. And when I see my own flaws, they will become profoundly riveting reasons to hate myself. We've got to hope in something, but everything we hope in, for in this world is precarious. And therefore, because we feel how precarious it all is, we end up anxious and self-protecting, and it means we don't love well and we don't live free. How do we change? And like I said, verse 5 says we change through the gospel, through the fundamental message of Jesus. So, extrapolating from the rest of Colossians, here's how it happened for, for this church. The change happened like this. There was a guy called Epaphras. Uh, Epaphras uh, probably became a follower of Jesus in Ephesus, which was a place not too far away where the Apostle Paul was teaching. And then Epaphras went home to his hometown, Colossae, and told them, uh, and this is kind of extrapolating from verses uh, 12 and 13 and the number of other places, he told them the message of Jesus. He said, listen, something like this, listen, the reason why hope fails us in this world is because as wonderful as this world is, it is also deeply damaged by evil. And that damage by evil, or what we might call sin, it impacts every one of us, which is to say we're all complicit with it. We, we can fight against evil, but we can't ever defeat evil. And most troubling, we can't defeat it in our own lives and in our own hearts. And so by ourselves, we're hopeless. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came, and you can see this all through Colossians, Jesus came to fight and defeat evil for us. The image is of Jesus being a, a champion who goes into, so to speak, a battle that we can't win and suffers a suffering that we can't endure on our behalf and he uh, takes upon himself all the penalty and all the consequence of evil. And in his death, in a remarkable way, we can talk about this more later, he, in his death and in his resurrection, he defeated it. And he rose again with, the, op with the, the fundamental offer 
says, I can transfer you from the kingdom of darkness, verse 12 and 13, to the kingdom of light. Now, when the Colossians heard that, and when they internalized it, one of the things that they realized was that their striving was over. The battle for hope was over and and done. It meant that they didn't have to create hope in their own lives and through their own efforts, but rather they got to receive hope that they could not produce. They realized that Jesus had accomplished everything necessary for their eternal joy, and it set them free because they realized that their, their hope was secure in heaven, not in them. That their hope was Jesus who had defeated evil. That their hope was something that nothing on earth could ultimately threaten. And therefore, they were filled with courage. Now, just imagine for a moment the kind of joy that living with that security gave them. Just imagine the kind of freedom that living with that kind of security gave them. Do you know that freedom and security? Let me read you a story. Uh, This comes from uh, the autobiography of John Bunyan. Uh, John Bunyan, some of you will know, uh, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress, up until very recently, was the second most widely read book, this is for trivia, second most widely read book ever, um, besides the Bible. Uh, But John Bunyan, for years and years and years, he was a very religious guy, but a little bit like Peter in the uh, Gospel reading, He was religious, he considered himself a follower of Jesus, but he didn't know anything of this kind of hope. And therefore, he was filled and racked with fear, and he was profoundly preoccupied with himself. And then this happened. I went on like this for many weeks. Sometimes I was comforted. Sometimes I was tormented. And especially sometimes my torment would be very severe. But then one day, as I was passing into the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing yet not all was right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. You might say, your hope is in heaven. And it was as if I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand, There I say, as my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, he needs my righteousness, for my righteousness was just there beside him. And I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. Now I was loosed from my affliction and my irons. My temptations also fled away. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and for the love of God. Oh, I saw that my gold was in my trunk at home. In Christ, my Lord and my Savior, Christ was all. All my righteousness, all my sanctification, and all my redemption. Now, that was the turning point in John's life. 
That was when he saw the hope offered in the gospel. And when he saw that and internalized it, it changed everything. Now, that's the story of one man coming to see the hope of the gospel clearly and it changing him. Jesus, friends, wants our whole church to be animated with this kind of hope. Jesus' vision for our church is that we would be captivated by the beauty of the hope that Jesus Christ has secured and that nothing in this world, if we belong to him, can touch. And part of the reason it's so important, friends, is that it is the key to being fruitful in this city. Did you know that? Verse 6, I'll paraphrase. Paul says to the Colossians, this same gospel that filled you with hope is now growing bearing fruit, spreading throughout all the world. And the idea was that just as Paul had received the gospel from Jesus himself, Epaphras had received it from Paul, and then Epaphras then shared it with the Colossian church, and the Colossian church was supposed to share it with their city. And the only reason, friends, that you and I are talking about this at all right now is because the gospel of hope has continued to spread for 2,000 years, and we're in that line. And our job is to share it with our city and to live out of it in this city. But here's the thing. The gospel of hope is shared through churches of hope. John Bunyan Uh, received the gospel of hope, and it's only then that he could write Pilgrim's Progress, which changed the lives of countless readers. Of course, he wrote it from prison. He was imprisoned by Anglicans. We can talk about that later, though. Um, We do not presume to come to trusting it. Anyways, um, (laughs) here's the point. We're going to be a good servant of our city to the extent that we internalize this hope. The more we rest in Jesus as our hope, the more we'll trust him. And that'll kill hypocrisy among us. It will. The more we rest in Jesus as our hope, the more we'll love each other deeply. And according to Jesus, loving each other well is one of uh, the main ways the rest of the world looks at us and says, yeah, Jesus has something worth listening to. The more we internalize the hope of the gospel, the more free we will be to uh, serve people who disagree with us, which we must be able to do. If we can't do that, then we're useless. Friends, Emmanuel Anglican Church exists to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. And that begins with seeing Christ as our final hope. So I ask again, how are you with that? Is he or is he not? Be honest. And don't try to work it up. Um, verse 3 is a thanksgiving. It's a, he's praising God. He's praising God for something God did in the Colossians, not something the Colossians worked up. So it's a gift that must be received, not something that must be attained. So how do we receive it? Well, look at your life and figure out what are you hoping in. What is your precarious false hope that you're basing your life on? How do you tell that? Well, what do you fear? What do you fantasize about? What is it that you cannot live without? Answer those questions honestly, and you'll have a good idea where your precarious hope lies. And then, take that thing you're hoping in, 
and hold it up next to Jesus Christ and everything he accomplished for you on the cross and ask yourself, can you trust a God who dies for you? Can you trust somebody who defeated death? Can you trust someone whose teaching is so filled with love and joy that people, even people who don't want to be a Christian, nevertheless have to admit that when they hear Jesus' teachings, it is riveting. Can you trust somebody like that? And as you look and compare those two things, ask God to do within your heart what you cannot produce yourself, to instill that hope. Hope not in yourself, but in Christ. And you'll be transformed and will be transformed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, it is an audacious thing to speak to you right now. Because we speak to you because we believe that though you died, yet nevertheless you came back to life and that you are right now alive. And as audacious as that claim is, it is the, the truth that has transformed countless lives and we want to count ourselves among them. So I pray for those of us who do not share this hope. Give it. I pray for those who have it and yet we feel precarious. Nonetheless, strengthen it. I pray for those who, are, who doubt and are skeptical. Address the questions. And will you do whatever it takes, be severe in your mercy towards us, that we would be a church that is animated by the hope laid up for us in heaven. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.